1: Our guest today is the Chief Operating Officer of Inakwa, Justin Crotty. As Chief Operating Officer, Justin handles the execution of Inakwa's growth strategy and day-to-day operations. He joined Inaqua in 2016 as Chief Financial Officer, where he assumed overall leadership for the global finance and accounting team. In 2018, he was appointed to COO, which expanded his functional responsibilities to include overseeing cloud hosting, legal, sales operations, and human resources to support the increasing scale of Innoqua's global business. Since 2019, Justin has served on Innoqua's board of directors. Prior to Inaqua, Justin served as a partner for Oliver Wyman where he advised private equity and corporate clients on growth and in M&A initiatives involving software, information, and service businesses. Before his leadership roles in strategy consulting, Justin worked in private equity, investment banking, and corporate development, and has experience working in the U- Europe, Asia, and the US. So Justin, welcome to Second Command Podcast.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Cameron. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, you've got a lot
1: to, um, to actually dig into here as well. I- I'd love to just find out a little bit what it was like um, before we start, about the transition from you going from a CFO role into the CO, COO role.
0: Yeah, so the um, the first transition was into CFO. So I had been in uh, working in strategy consulting for seven or eight years um, and mainly advising private equity and some corporate clients, mainly information and software businesses. And uh, so for me, the CFO transition was sort of leaning on the financial aspect of what I had learned in those roles in investment banking and private equity before that, and then also you know using some project management skills that I had, using some general management skills that I had, you know, sort of putting all of that together uh, to make the transition. You know, first into an operating role, and the the transition from CFO to COO was sort of gradual over time. So when I joined uh, as CFO, you know, primarily focused on finance and accounting, but from the beginning. Uh, by virtue of the background with strategy consulting, you know, advised the C- CEO on strategy from the beginning. Uh, M and A was sort of under my domain, and then over time we added some responsibilities. So we added sales operations, cloud operations, HR, legal. You know, sort of as uh, my bandwidth. You know, as I as we d- accomplished what we needed to in finance and accounting, and I had more bandwidth, was able to to help with those additional functions and add some leverage. So. You know, For us, COO has, at least for me, COO has those three parts still. So it's sort of owning these functional departments related to the operations of the business. It's advising the CEO. The CEO. And then since uh, 2019, as you mentioned, also sitting in the board uh, and, and with an eye toward governance of the company.
1: Yeah, I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes as well. It's interesting. Harvard came out with an article about 15 years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. And they identified seven distinct types of chief operating officers. And when I look at it, even across our members of our CO alliance, we've got members from 17 countries. And I'd say about 30% of them run finance and 70% of them don't. And, and of the 30% that run finance, you know, 50 or 60% of them are true kind of CFO professionals that have taken over ops responsibilities. And then the other part is, you know, operations people that are somehow trying to oversee finance. You've got a a really interesting skill set that I think not a lot of operations people have. It's almost like a sales and marketing person. You know, they suck at so much of the business, but they're great at sales, right? Whereas, to be to be great in finance requires some of the detail orientation. How did you end up getting good at being able to oversee sales and marketing and operations as well?
0: So, uh, to be clear, I don't oversee sales and marketing, um, okay. but I do have, you know strategy and some of the other group, but. For me, it was, um, so I picked up some of the basics on finance in, obviously in business school and then working in banking and private equity for five years was Mm -hmm. pretty entrenched, at least in, you know, as a, as a consumer of financial information, if not necessarily a producer of financial information. Um, But for me, the, I think the most valuable piece for taking on the CFO role came from strategy consulting which was really learning to dig into a problem and analyze it and pick it apart from multiple dimensions you know it was really just just coming up you know looking at a situation and coming up with an answer and saying i think this might be due to factor x wasn't a good enough answer you had to look at it from from multiple angles and really have a good understanding of exactly what was driving that that factor, you know, because that could be a key component of what the valuation was of the business you were looking at, or sure. you know, whatever the problem it was that you were being paid to solve. Uh, you couldn't have a, I think it might be type of answer. You needed to have a definitive answer, and that skill set really translated, I think, to being a CFO because uh, coming in, you know, you're giving you're given this information, and it's up to you. You're ultimately the accountable financial authority in the business, so it's up to you to be the one that understands, well, what happened to profit, you know, what happened in this segment of the business in this month, uh, being able to understand those trends and then being able to do something about it, um, you know, is, is, is really what it's all about.
1: Yeah. It makes sense. You didn't, you didn't come up through the bookkeeping controller director of finance kind of path. You came in from the strategy and analytics and, um, that side of the business, which makes a lot of
0: sense. Yeah. Strategy M and a, um, Uh, you know, really looking at it from um, really from the investor perspective, from the stakeholder perspective as a consumer, you know, they're obviously moving into an operating role where you're owning those financials. There's growing pains. You know, when I came on there, there are a lot of, uh, you know, awkward silences in meetings when an advisor or a practitioner was presenting a, uh, you know, presenting some financials to me or analysis or a concept where maybe I didn't know the lingo and I'd have to hit the pause button and say, you know, rewind, explain that to me again. Like I'm a very smart eighth grader that doesn't understand all of your lingo. Um, But, you know, I I don't have much ego, so I was happy to do that. And, um, you know, ultimately leads to a better understanding of what exactly you're trying to accomplish in the business. That makes sense. Has, has Has
1: being in the CFO seat hurt you in operations at all?
0: I'm not going to lead you with my, my question. <laughs> well, I'll take the lead and we'll see if it goes to where you're thinking. The, um, I it, it's, it, it can be all consuming, right? So I think initially when I expanded the, my responsibilities in the business, I was still spending a lot of time on the, the finance and accounting side. So for me, the, the key thing was, was balance, um, you know, and, and having the discipline to spend time on the other parts of the business that need attention as well. Um, so, so so, for me, that was the, the key thing and being comfortable, you know, having others do that analysis, run with the financials, you know, sort of um, take care of that. And then, you know, for me taking a step back and focusing on other initiatives to either help grow the business organically or, you know, we've been spending, we've spent a lot of time on M&A in the past, um, well, throughout my time, but, uh, you know, past year in particular, since last summer, we've done four acquisitions. So, you know, those take time to to execute and now to integrate. Yeah, totally. Tell me, where did you
1: get the leadership chops? Where did you actually learn the skills of, of being a good leader, which is required across all the operational roles?
0: I started, so I started my career out of college. I started in tech consulting. Um so this was like mid '90s, late '90s. Um, company was called Sapient, which was you know systems integrator, and then web web businesses a little later. Sure. Um, and they were very good at developing, you know, sort of putting you in very uncomfortable situations very quickly. Um, and the business was growing so rapidly, you sort of it was just an natural evolution. So I think by the time I was 24, I was managing teams of 20, 30 people, you know, a few years out of college, just because that was. That was sort of the norm, you know. When I joined, we had three hundred people at Sapient. Within four years, we were at three thousand four hundred people, you know. And, and most of that growth was organic. Um, so, you know, they put you in. Um, they they obviously had some leadership development and training, but a big part of it was putting you in growth situations outside your comfort zone, and then supporting you with, um, you know, uh, mentorship was a huge part of the culture there you know, giving you some tools, but ultimately investing in you and letting you make mistakes and then recover. Uh, and I certainly made plenty of mistakes along the way, but, you know, it was learning to take care of the team, learning to manage the scope, you know, learning the project management, those things I think have um, paid dividends certainly, you know, later in my career with this, uh, with the CIO mandate. So so before
1: I talk or I get you to talk to us a little bit about what um, Oniquest, you know, what the company does. Tell us about a mistake that you learned from then.
0: Well, I I mentioned, so I was 20, by the time I was 24, I was managing these large project teams. And uh, I mean, I'll never forget it. It was, um, I had worked on these sales compensation systems, right? So you have all of your your reps in the business and uh, they have different compensation schemes, transactions come in, apply rules, compensate them. Sounds simple. It's actually pretty complicated Business business problem to solve, and uh, so there's a large insurance company. They had parachuted me in to manage it. It was 24 years old, and it was a new it was a new platform. We were applying. I didn't know anything about insurance. Uh, you know, we had a, a a pretty challenging client. I was traveling for the project. You know, and ultimately it just got away from me. It was um, you know, client was difficult. Uh, you know, team was new and growing. Um, ultimately it was just, I wasn't painting a clear vision of what success was looking like. I mean, it was like, you know, 24, all all the mistakes I was 24, you know, I'd been highly successful to that point on the prior ones, uh, just drove it into the ground. (laughs) Um, you know, clear, clearly, uh, you know, was out of my league in it. Um, but again, to, to the credit of the company's leadership at the time, it was okay, pick yourself up, you know, let's dust you off and and get ready for the next one. And they gave me another one that was same size or bigger. And, uh, you know, and that obviously that one was a success. Um,
1: Well, and the uh, learner, the learner isn't to learn ready to learn until the, till they're ready. Right. Like you, you have to trip and fall until you're, you're ready to actually grow.
0: A- absolutely. And I think knowing where your limits were too. Right. So prior to that point, you know, I didn't know, um, yeah. you don't know until you really have an experience like that, but, but man, that was formative. I mean, really, talk about understanding the importance of managing scope, managing team, managing project plans, managing execution. Like those are lessons I've never forgotten. For sure. Tell us about Anakko. What do you guys do? Uh, so Anakko, it's a, um, you know, really the core of the business, the bread and butter is uh, intellectual property workflow software. That's the company's history. So it's uh, precise rules for obtaining and managing your portfolio of intellectual property, pat, primarily patents, trademarks. Um, that's sort of the core of the company's history. From there, we've added on um, other, other, other offerings. So uh, for example, you probably know, but when you get a patent, typically you'll, um, you, you'll get your patent in your home country, and then you'll look to put that into effect in other jurisdictions where you sell right. or manufacture. Um, and then you have to make renewal payments to those jurisdictions. It's basically a tax. They don't call it a no. tax, but uh, with certain frequency. So we, you know, that's an example of an additional service that we do for our clients uh, who are interested. So if you are signed up for the Inakwa, uh software, you're using our software, managing your portfolio, either as a corporate or a law firm. And uh, the, the idea of having uh, a partner who can manage those payments for you, on a reliable and cost-effective basis is a pretty attractive uh, value proposition. So it's um, you know it's one less thing to worry about. You know that all of these uh, patents and trademarks, you spent all this R&D money and time developing, you know that those will be safe and they'll continue to be in effect and we'll sort of take care of it for you. Really more of a, you're pretty much a SaaS company then. The, the heart is SaaS. Yeah, actually from the company's founding in 2004, the, the core workflow has been SaaS. Uh, and and virtually all of our customers are hosted on our on our platform, and then we have these additional services that we will offer to those customers for, um, you know, for those IP payments or for uh, you know patent search, uh, docketing. There are all other all sorts of other services that we do that are a benefit. You know, it's nice for us for additional. Um, you know, it, 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 obviously it's additional revenue for these customers. We've invested a lot of time and money. Um, to have them join us. But for them, it's actually a big benefit to have more you know, more services on one platform, seamlessly integrated. Uh, we find there's actually higher customer satisfaction for customers that are using us for more things. You, um, A friend of
1: mine, Andrew Sherman, do you know that name? He's a trademark and patent lawyer or another one, Denise Gosnell. Do you know either of them?
0: I, sh- I should, but, but An- not really
1: Andrew Sherman will be a good referral source. I'm going to talk to him about your company and see, but he, he talked to me about patents and trademarks being kind of like the Rembrandt in the attic. And if, if you and I were out buying a, a home and and you bid $2 million on the home and I walk around and I notice there's two Rembrandt paintings up in the attic and I'm like, shit, I'll, I'll offer 4 million for the home. And you're like, Cameron's crazy. I'm like, dude, you can take the home. I want the four, I want the four, $6 million worth of paintings. Like I want those, that IP. Most companies don't understand what intellectual property is and what they're missing. Can you give us some examples for the Kind of the mid-sized companies that maybe haven't started thinking about this. I think the the Fortune fives really know this, but what about for the the mid-sized, the fifty to five hundred person companies, what do they start looking for as assets?
0: Yeah, the um, so so first of all, you're exactly right. It has been more the domain of the larger, you know, uh, larger companies are the ones that invest in the R and D invest in building out in-house staff for getting and protecting that uh, IP assets, you know, to support the R&D or branding assets on the trademark side. Um, and the the uh, the EU IPO did, did a survey, I think it was 2019 or so. And they proved out that, you know, all companies across the board have higher revenue per employee. I think it was about 20%, you know, for having the ones that have Meaningful IP portfolios, but for small and medium enterprises, it was even more pronounced. I think it was like sixty eight percent. Why is so, that? Is
1: it because they're thinking more strategically? Or are they are they leveraging that? What are they doing?
0: I, I think it's all about. Um, I think it's it's a few things. It's about um, create you know concerted effort for you know what are you developing that's going to create that competitive moat. Right, Warren Buffett, create that competitive moat against your competitors. Yeah, and are you creating something that's that's meaningful and sustainable uh, over time? Right, so that you know, typical these a, a trademark will go on indefinitely if you've you know if you're maintaining it and demonstrating use. So, and patents can also have um, you know very long long term lives for these things. So, you know, I think it's about um, it, it focuses your thinking to develop these assets that are going to be a competitive advantage. And, you know, if you do that in a, in a way that advantages your company, disadvantages your competitors, you know, and you now have force of law behind that, you now have something that's, um, you know, that's a meaningful asset. And as you said, in a sale process, you know, similar math holds that if you, um, companies that have meaningful IP portfolios get higher multiples uh, in sale processes. It's funny. I just thought of a really weird
1: use of IP that I don't think I, I I'm curious if anybody thinks of, but. It's also a recruiting tool. When you actually take your Rembrandts or your IP and show them to potential high-level executives and show them your strategic value, they must see another reason to come into your operation versus just your current P and L, right?
0: Absolutely. Um, and there are, you know, some, um, you know, some organizations are more sophisticated than others in understanding the value of that IP and articulating the value of that IP. You know, it's something we focused on as a company. So. Uh, for example, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier these renewal payments. You know, part of what it costs money to maintain these IP portfolios, and part of what we try to help our customers with, is making those decisions to understand what is valuable and what they own. So, for example, if you have a patent that's being cited by other applicants, that's a more valuable patent. And mm-hmm. if your patent is being cited by examiners as actually blocking another applicant's patent, that's, even, that's another, even more uh, pronounced indicator that the, the patent you have is value, valuable. So, you know, that means when you're thinking of your renewal decisions, where to spend money or not, obviously the one that's scoring higher, being cited, being used as a blocker, you know, that's a, that's a very valuable uh, asset that you have there that you want to make sure you're maintaining. So you
1: mentioned that you know when you're when you're looking to sell your company, you have that IP as an asset that you're going to be able to sell, and you kind of sell the sizzle, right? You you show the opportunities with all this patent because you haven't done anything with it necessarily yet, or maybe you have. Um, in some cases, it's just sitting there. In some cases, you're using it. In the four acquisitions that you just did, I think you mentioned you did four acquisitions recently do you try to underplay the value of the IP or do you like, do you look for, you know, like, do you look for the IP and go, yeah, but it's not worth that much, but you're like, well, that's really valuable or how do you, how do you work around that?
0: We're a little bit of the, uh, the, the doctor who's his own worst patient. Right. So, so in general, the, we obviously take a look at the uh, IP of the acquisitions that we're doing, but you know, the four we've done in the past year, uh, one one of them actually had some uh, some some pretty interesting patents and trademarks. The other three were smaller, and it wasn't as much of a you know focus for us. So, you know, for us, I'd love to say that we do detailed uh, IP evaluation and scoring, and that it folds into our valuation model. But you know, historically, You're not that Machiavellian. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. So what about the acquisitions? What did you learn from doing them? I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of our clients in the CO Alliance are doing acquisitions right now. I've got four of my clients are actually getting ready to be sold. What did you learn in the acquisition process? Where, where did you struggle? I w- let's talk about the looking for target, you know, companies to buy and then the actual buying process and then the integration process. So what did you learn in the, in these trying to find target companies?
0: Uh, I guess two things there. So th- the first one is, um, you know, we're we're somewhat advantaged in that intellectual property isn't. It's it's a fairly finite universe. So for us, what that means is getting to know, you know, getting to know the players in the industry, taking the time, getting on the plane. Our CEOs, you know, very good at building the relationships with uh, people in the industry. We and our entire executive team. We, you know, for us that's important and. To some extent, that's a consistent theme in IP because we you don't you you can believe strongly in IP and the rule of law, and share that belief with competitors in the market, right? So a chief IP officer at one company could be very close colleagues with the chief IP at a competitor because the common interest is having strong rule of law and IP and having you know clear rules for how that works, and I think that sort of you know carries on to vendors in the space we try to understand, you know, who the competitors are, you know, what are people trying to accomplish, build those relationships over time. So, you know, of the four acquisitions uh, since last summer, uh, I think two were people that we had had longer term, sure. you know, sellers had decided to retire at longer term relationships. And then, you know, when it's time to do a transaction, we're there. Uh, talk about then the actual transaction process. What did you learn in that? Where were
1: your missteps? What were your successes? I mean, without giving away your your kind of playbook. Um, can you give us any tips or any? Yeah. Lessons
0: of- I think for us, the key, I think a key learning. So we've done, um, so in the company's history, we've done 10 acquisitions. We've done nine since the current, uh, CEO has been here. And then four. you know, we picked up the pace, uh, in the past, uh, year. I think the, the common theme of the successful ones versus the, the, you know, less successful ones are the focus. So, you know, for us, the key is to understand early on in the process, what are the key drivers of value creation? And what are the key diligence questions that we need to answer? And then having a focus on those areas throughout the course of the prosecution of the transaction, because it's really easy to get distracted, right? It's really easy to say, you know, here's some, here's a new uh, market opportunity, or here's a, you know, potential, uh, issue we've seen in the business, even though it's off to the side and doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. So, you know, staying focused on those key issues, um, you know, that you identify up front, those key questions, answering those questions, you know, I'd say that's probably number one, you know, the, the, the key determinant of success. I'd say another one for us has been advisors. So having a good, uh, stable of advisors that understand you understand the business, you know, get on the same page with you can align on those key questions. Um, you know, that's been, um, you know, definitely helps the, the transaction process itself move faster when you have that, when you have that in place. How do you balance the advice that you're getting
1: from advisors with the opinions you're getting from advisors? How do you know when to, to, it's kind of like a, a, a yeah. How do you, how do you balance that out? Or do you, mean, do you just, do you just listen and then say thank you for that and then go back and discuss? Is that what you
0: Yeah, I'd say, I'd say for us, um, you know, it, it's somewhat self-fulfilling in the advisors you select. So the advisors that we tend to work with, I would say are the ones that understand our questions and are able to give us answers to those questions and help us, you know, move forward. And then, you know, if we ask for a recommendation, render it, you know, that was my approach when I was in consulting and advising uh, private equity and corporate was, you know, here, here's the analysis, here's the options, you know, here's the recommendation. Um, and sort of distinguishing between those those things. Okay, and let's
1: talk about the integration. Once you've acquired these companies, are you typically keeping the CEO on board? Is the CEO leaving? How do you merge the management teams? What have you guys struggled with, and what have you done well on the integration side?
0: So, of the four uh, four in the past year, or so uh, two, you know, founders are sort of the transaction was to facilitate their you know uh, retirement, moving on. So, you know, for those, it's fairly uh, straightforward, and then you know, for the other ones, generally part of our thesis is management, ongoing management involvement. Um, and even in the cases where, uh, you know, where the actual CEO, owner, founder is leaving, you know, working with uh, next tier of management, and we've had good success there to, um, you know, have people um, run the business if we're if we're continuing it, which most of the cases we are continuing that business, um, you know, finding, finding that, that, the next level of management, if the, uh, if the CEO is, you know, if the CEO is transitioning out as part of the transaction. Um, Is there, um, do you get rid of their finance
1: team? Do you get rid of their marketing team? Like are there departments that you just can obliterate for lack of a better word?
0: No, we don't. We don't. And and in general, you know, we've been growing the business, right? So when I joined, we were uh, probably 150 people and now we're over 500. We've, we've grown the business and we, you know, we don't have a massive uh, infrastructure. So we don't have a playbook when we come in to every acquisition to say, okay, here's what's here's what's staying, here's what's going. So for us, it's opportunistic. And more often than, sorry, not opportunistic, it's, it's case by case. And more often than not, we're going into these acquisitions with a buy and build mentality. So mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. you know, especially if it's been a founder bootstrapped, right? So, you know, a lot of times they won't have a lot of that infrastructure. So for us, it's coming in and figuring out, you know, okay. How can we invest? What's the market opportunity? What do we need to do to support that? You know, if they don't have much of a finance organization, and we're going to support that with our corporate finance organization, you know, what is that going to create for a pinch point? And do we need to add something in the corporate at the corporate level to facilitate the additional sure. you know, volume that we're picking up with that customer?
1: What's it been like with some of the global? How many you've got? What percentage of your team would be global, and what percent of your clients would be global?
0: So that I mean, we have more employees outside the U.S. than inside the U.S. at this point. So it's a very global uh, organization. The client count is is skewed is probably skewed more toward the U.S., but significant you know global representation. IP is very much a global Mm -hmm. uh, industry. You know, not just the sort of uh, client base, as you know, as as you mentioned earlier, tends to be the historically anyway. It's been the larger organizations that have the largest IP portfolios. Um, but they run it as a global, it tends to be run as a global enterprise, global operation. Um, but cross-border patent filings are huge. So, you know, any, any multinational is going to have a large, uh, portfolio of IP. It's just a question of where do they house it? What have you learned about, about working with people
1: globally? Like, are there any differences with some of the people or some of the countries, any cultural differences that you've had to adopt to?
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there, has been a lot, but I think, you know, for, for, us, um, you know, I, I would say the biggest, uh, the, the biggest common success factor for that has been making the effort to try to understand, you know, where that, where that group is coming from. Right. So if that means, uh, getting on a plane and going out and spending time with them, looking at how they run that part of the business, you know, really just, just investing that time and effort and trying to, uh, understand, identify, um, you know, that's been, I, I, I find that most things sort of fade away. If you're, if you're putting in that effort, you know, most things that might be called the sort of cultural way of doing things, if you're putting in that sincere effort, those things sort of fade away. And for the most part, you know, people want to work together and achieve the, the sort of corporate objectives that you have, Um, but it is tough and it's time consuming. Um, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: yeah. How about on the board side of things?
1: Is that different?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a totally different lens. So, um, you know, you're uh, when you look at the letter from the auditors, right? So when you're done with your audit, they have a wrap up letter that they send, you know, to those. It's it's t- addressed to those in charge, to those tasked with governance of the corporation, um, and that's you know, as a board member, that's your view, right? So as an operator, you have the objectives you're trying to accomplish with the company, but you also have the constraints, right? So you you have these you have these constraints, you've got your budget, you've got your parameters, you've got your team like, and you're constantly trying to balance the objectives you're tasked with, with the resources you have. And at the board level, it's a, it's a different lens, right? The, the the board is tasked with making, you know, with, with ensuring that the company is acting in the best interest of its stakeholders, however you've defined those stakeholders and the constraints, obviously you have constraints, but it's that, you know, the, the board has the power to change those constraints if needed, right? If the board decides yep. to change the operating budget for the year, because yep. there's an objective that's critically important, like that's totally within the board's uh, uh, discretion to do so. So it's really, I, I, for me, it's been really interesting um, to be a part of the board and to participate in that part of the, um, you know, the governance aspect of the company in addition to the operating aspect. And and do you have to walk
1: in being really cognizant of that as well? Like, do you have to walk in and say, okay, like today I'm going to, you know, be thinking with my board hat, or do you go in as a leadership team member who's happens to be in a board meeting?
0: That's a great question. It, it probably goes, it, it changes a little bit. So as management, we're obviously doing a lot of the presenting of the metrics of the business, right? Here's where we are for this month, this quarter, um, and then there is then there's discussion around that. So even within a meeting, it's it's probably pivoting back and forth a little bit. To here's the information. Okay, what do we do? You know, what do we do about it? How do we take action? Is there
1: anything you try to um, hide from the board? Like, is there anything that you don't really want to disclose to the board or that you might bring up at a leadership team meeting?
0: No, I think um, I mean the 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 key point there is just the level right so it's just the level of granularity obviously we'd never hide anything but the question you know if if we tried to get into every operating issue at the board level we'd never make any progress right, right. so it's 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 understanding the role of the board right the role of the board is governance and oversight and the board has really unique the board members have unique insight and perspective so for me as a member of the management team it's about you know what's the information i need to give to the board to ma- to to make the best use of their insight and experience right so w- you know what can i present to them that will help us make the right decision for the business to move it forward so is uh, it is it
1: more part. advisory or is it a blend of advisory and board of directors
0: It is board of directors, so um, we have a you know, it it is a board of directors. Governance and compliance, and governance compliance. It's um, you know financial oversight, audit review. It's it's sort of traditional. You know, we're we're a larger company, um, you know, so it's 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 not a sort of um, you know venture uh, or you know sort of growth equity stage thing. It's more mature, you know, board construct that we
1: have. Where does the leadership team go for? for mentoring or for advice, you know, other than the board than right now?
0: Um, I'd say for, or is, is probably, it each other? Yeah, it's, it's probably different answers for each of us. So I think, you know, a lot of us, um, have been in different roles. So, you know, I've done certainly a lot of different things in my career. So it's about maintaining the the mentorship relationships, uh, there, I think that's true with my colleagues, you know, other leaders, uh, in the team. I think advisors, um, you know, I wouldn't say we we obviously don't seek mentorship from advisors, but we do seek input from our advisors, right? And we value those relationships with our, um, you know, financial advisors, our lawyers, um, uh, investment bankers, you know, all those things are important relationships to maintain, but that's, that's more sort of a sounding board as we try to think through important topics rather than, you know, uh, sort of mentorship per se. Okay, and I'm sure that the growth from 150
1: people to 500 people has been easy. With the four acquisitions, probably all been easy, right? The leadership team. Yeah, pretty all much. Just- Gets along perfectly. <laughs> how do you how do you deal with and an, you know Pat Lencioni in Five Dysfunctions of a Team talks about the fear of conflict and the avoidance of of accountability. How do you guys or, or how does your team operate and how do you handle conflict when it starts to arise and and how do you embrace healthy conflict? Any thoughts around that?
0: Yeah, I think I mean for us, um, I, I would say as a member of the uh, executive team, it, for for us it's the 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 main point is communication so it's you know we meet our executive team meets twice per week and we try to talk about you know what are the key issues facing the business what are we hearing from clients what are we hearing from the market what are we seeing competitors doing you know trying to get those those key topics out for discussion and having that communication and then you know for more um you know, there's, there's obviously going to be a conflict between different groups as you're, when you're in a high growth environment, as you said, when you're growing and dealing with integrations, you're going to have those, um, you know, you're going to have some of those conflicts rise, but for us, I think the key is communications, right? So, so, you know, our CEO is very supportive of, um, you know, if there's an issue coming up, the first question is going to be, well, who have you talked to, right? So, so, you know, have you gotten that perspective of other people involved in that situation and 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 what are you gonna do about it? How are you gonna take action on it? And do you
1: ever misstep on that stuff?
0: Oh, all the time, of course. Yeah, <laughs> you know, again, again, it's, uh, we run, um, you know, we run the organization, we, we run the organization lean, you know, so we try to keep, uh, we try to keep the layers reduced, but, you know, as a result of that, a lot of people are doing a lot of things. You take on additional responsibility and a lot of time if you have a conflict it's not going to be it, it's not going to be bad faith right mm-hmm. it's going to be either you know lack of time to address the problem or uh, lack of understanding you know probably again back to lack of time to back understand lack the of time, yeah. um yeah. so a, a lot of times you know we all we're all acting in good faith um, you wouldn't stick around you know our organization if you're if, if you're not so um, you know, for us, that's, that's sort of the key to addressing conflict when it arises. So i want to talk about,
1: um, working with the CEO. I mean, one of the roles of the COO I've always felt is to kind of, it's like the emperor's new suit, right? Where you have to tell the King that his clothes, he's not wearing any, right. And h- how do you deal with advising the CEO and also telling the CEO when you feel he's wrong?
0: So, um, I think the the first point is on the advisory, so that's how you know I knew our CEO before he was CEO. He was my client back when I was in consulting, so we've got we've got a long history of uh, me providing him with advice. And I think you know the key there is same as any relationship, right? So it's it's the analysis, it's the insight, it's the recommendation. So you know how can you pick those things pick those things apart and make sure that you're addressing each of those. Buckets, right? To to render the advice, yeah. Um, so I think that's that's a key piece of it. And then you know, as far as the actual delivery of the information, you know, same thing. It's about figuring out what's the right forum to do it. You know, how do you balance speed of, of giving uh, advice with depth of analysis, right? So, for example, um, you may have a situation that's that's cooking where you know, ideally, you take a day and distill your thoughts and and come up with a more robust analysis. But on the other hand, you know, something needs to be actioned very quickly and you don't have the luxury of doing that. So, you know, that's a phone call to the CEO versus uh, here's my, you know, three slides, digesting the problem and and rendering a recommendation. Well, and and now we don't get to sit across the hall or or
1: right beside them. So were you a a, a location-based business prior to
0: COVID and, and were there changes because of COVID related to that? So we, we were, so we were, um, you know, obviously we've had a remote workforce, um, but, you know, multiple offices and, and, and mainly office-based with sort of key contributors in different remote locations. Um, yeah, so with COVID, you know, very quickly shifted to a remote model, primarily for the software, you know, for the, the software side of the business, for the implementation side of the business, for some of our service-based um, parts of the business, for example, the payments that I mentioned earlier, that that really is more of a location-based uh, service. So for that business that, that's primarily based in France, we had to figure out, you know, what's the combination of uh, working remotely plus uh, scheduled time in the office, you know, accounting for employee safety, you know, sort of um, wasn't switch, flip switch, go completely remote. We had this You know, it's very different approaches to COVID based on where you were in the world. The U.S. had a very different approach from Japan, from France, uh, from the U.K. You know, each region was very different that we were sort of, you know, having to manage, uh, still are having to manage throughout throughout, uh, the course of the virus. And and what were the big challenges that you had from that? Um, I think. uh, I mean, for um, for the United States, the the key for us was was probably that initial, the initial move to remote, right? Because we, we, we thought we were there, we're a software business, you know, we thought we were there, but you really don't know how that's going to work until you actually, you yeah. know, the first, right? So, so mainly that there's that sort of March, Friday, right? When it became clear that the world was changing. And by that Monday, you know, you turn the lights off Friday when you turn the lights on virtually on Monday, you're not quite sure how that's going to react. So, you know, for us, that was the sort of leap of faith, um, but, it, you know, it worked tremendously. Um, you know, productivity was great. We had a good year um, last year, you know, employees adapted to it, um, you know, for, for the business itself, um, you know, for an aqua. So there was a question um, of what would happen for the underlying intellectual property market business. Um, back in the last recession, 08, 09, you know, people did continue filing new IP, did maintain their IP, but, you know, again, COVID was a new crisis. So we didn't really know would, would clients make irrational pruning decisions right. and really hack those renewal fees that I was telling you about earlier. Uh, but they definitely didn't, you know, clients, they realize they spend all this time and money on R&D or brand development to come up with this IP. And then they tend to be uh, very thoughtful to, to maintaining it and not making rash decisions. Um, so that's an approach we've tried to, you know, to, to live up to within the business. How do you price?
1: Is it a fee for just the renewals or is it based on the value of, of some of the IP at all, or
0: is it some of the service around it? Uh, so the software, you know, software is a subscription, primarily a subscription based on the, uh, size of your IP, uh, portfolio and then the payments. Yeah. It's generally, a there's a transactional pricing scheme and a contractual wrapper. Hmm. It's
1: a really interesting model. All right, I want to go back to the 22-year-old Justin Crotty, who's kind of <laughs> getting ready to start off on his career prior to just before the 24-year-old crash project, a <laughs> project crash. What advice would you give yourself as a
0: 22-year-old that you know to be true today? Don't don't take that project in New York and run <laughs> into right. the ground. Um I've always been a planner, so for me, uh, I've always had plans of you know here's where I'm going to go, here's where I see my career going. Um, They never, you know, those are never the plans that actually happen, right? So when I was in private equity, one of the the founders, the partner, always would say that you'd put a a plan or a model in front of them and say the one thing we know is this isn't true. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: But that doesn't mean you shouldn't go through the exercise of making the plans, right? So for me, for for me, I've had you know, four, maybe five careers now, however you want to count it. But I've found that those experiences have been super valuable for the role that I play now, right? We talked about you, you asked about some of that earlier. So I think the advice to 22-year-old me that had the linear career path set up would be, you know, don't worry about it. Focus on having good experiences. You're going to have failures, you know, figure out what can you learn from those you know, and how can you, um, you know, how can you develop a broad skill set that ultimately you're going to use? You just may not know how mm. you're going to use it yet. Just uh, work hard at the time you're wherever you're on, right? Yeah, work hard. Try to get, you know, try to get better each time. Try to take care of people. Try to take care of, you know, your team. Try to take care of your clients. Like just, just, just try to do those things and don't necessarily worry about the outcome uh, every time, right? So, Um, because you don't know, you, you can't predict what may or may not be valuable, right? Like I didn't know when I was working on, uh, engineering 25 years ago that, you know, now I would own, uh, be responsible for, for cloud hosting and, you know, having some basic understanding of technology would be really helpful for, for having Mm -hmm. those discussions, right? You just don't know. So focus on having broad experiences, learn from your mistakes, try to take care of people and the rest, the rest will take care of itself. I love it. Justin Crotty, the COO from Innoqua, thank
1: you so much for sharing with us today on the Second in Command podcast. Really appreciate the time and the ideas. Yeah, great talking to you,
0: Cameron. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.